Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, this morning we <coughs> uh, discussed or talked about these uh, three characteristics. And what we were concerned with is the first of the Noble Eightfold Path, this business of uh, right view, right understanding. And uh, what the Buddha is saying is that it's actually in the way that we're looking which is at fault. It's the way we understand things. And um, the quality of that understanding is uh, deep within the actual intelligence that we are. The Buddha, for want of a better word, the Buddha nature within and we call it a delusion he calls it a delusion and the definition of a delusion is that of course you don't know you're deluded this is the problem (laughs) if if somebody's deluded what we're saying is that they don't know how mad they are so here we are you see completely mad and not knowing it and <clears throat> something awakens us to that delusion and it's suffering well, the Buddha actually says quite clearly that it's suffering that coming to look at suffering which leads us to the end of suffering so although it's not a pleasant thing it actually is a goal for us to uh, find you know, where the end of suffering is how we can bring suffering to an end Um, I like to tell my sad tale with an optician on this occasion. <coughs> I got these new pair of glasses and the left eye felt uncomfortable. But as far as I could see, I, I saw properly. So I went back and I said, the left eye feels uncomfortable. And she tested me, there's another optician. I said it was the wrong prescription. It had not taken into account astigmatism. Now, for those of you with 2020 eyesight, astigmatism <laughs> is a sort of wave in the lens. You know, like the old glass used to have a wave, and, it would, and when you look through it, it would distort the image. So that's what this stigmatism does, you see. And uh, she corrected it. I had a new lens, and the discomfort disappeared. <clears throat> now, what was amazing to me was that I could see no difference between the seeing with the wrong lens and the actual process of seeing with the right lens. It all seemed exactly the same to me, except that there was a discomfort. And I think that's a wonderful metaphor for for our situation. That somehow being here is dukkha. Dukkha means a hard place. Um, One of the little epithets they use, one of the little descriptions they use, 
is of an axle which doesn't fit the wheel right. It's just not, it's not quite, <laughs> it's not quite right. And uh, <clears throat> that uh, essential sort of delusion, that essential um, wrong way of looking is what we're trying to correct when we see these three characteristics. So we're in a better position than the Buddha himself because when he started off there would seem to be very little information as to where suffering might arise. And through his own um, efforts he came to be able to pinpoint exactly where the problem lay. And we talked this morning about a mistake you see, because the process begins uh, at the level of not knowing, and it's through not knowing that we presume to know. So, as a child, what do we know? You know, there you are, gurgling, weeping, <laughs> and you just presume yourself to be this little bundle of flesh, and it just continues. And as we said this morning, what we're trying to do is to create heaven on earth. Interestingly enough, no religion predicts heaven on earth. They always say you have to die, and then you go. But you can't get it here. You get a glimpse of it here, but you can't maintain it here because of the situation of the world. So, <clears throat> when, we, um, when we come to see that, our next... Um, our next task as it were having seen the problem having seen that we create continuity where there isn't continuity we create solidity substantiality, a sense of self where there isn't one and we try to find happiness in the world which can't deliver see? so once we begin to, to sort of understand that, begin to see that in ourselves then the next question comes up is well how do we then create the transformation how do we then become Buddha? Because that's what he did. And he said uh, there was no distinction to be made between himself and anybody else. So our problem is now, having perceived these wrong views, these wrong understanding, is how do we proceed in order to uh, get rid of our suffering and, and this is the positive side, remember, uh, to end up with this um, beautiful mind the beautiful mind, the beautiful heart. So remember that once the Buddha had um, liberated himself from that delusion, it wasn't as though he turned into some sort of gormless, amorphic blob sat by the road. <laughs> he was obviously quite charismatic. In fact, there's very shortly after his um, enlightenment, his awakening, he actually is wandering to see these five, uh, five earlier companions to tell them about, his, about what he has to teach them. And he meets uh, um, one of these ascetics on the way. And the ascetic, who's never forget, uh, says to him, you know, you look so bright, you, you're gleaming. So who's, you know, what's your understanding? Who's your teacher? And he goes into this wonderful self-panegyric about how he is the enlightened one, the fully, <laughs> fully self-enlightened. And... Uh, uh, understandably, the ascetic goes, oh, very interesting, mm, and then wanders off. <laughs> and that was one of his uh, first understandings, that yeah, that wasn't quite the way to teach. <laughs> when, 
when he actually approaches his disciples, they sort of know him as this, you know, Siddhartha who'd been struggling like him, and they and they think he's gone soft anyway because he he'd eaten and stuff, and they refuse really to acknowledge him. But as he comes close, they feel there's something quite strange, quite different about him, and almost um, unwillingly they prepare a seat for him and start listening to him, and he starts to try and convince them. And they, and they, you know, they're saying, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he says to them, have you ever heard me speaking like this before? Have you ever heard me ever say things like this before? And they say, no, no. And that's when they open up. And um, even by the end of the first talks, uh, one of them has become on the first rung of enlightenment, well, rung of awakening. <clears throat> so the teaching isn't just about trying to see something. It's about this process of transformation. And there are two uh, processes that we have to go through. The first one is the, the more passive one, and the second one is the active one. Now the passive one is already happening when we practice Vipassana. Um, just by turning our gaze away from the symptoms of our disease, away from the symptoms of our wrong view, these symptoms begin to disappear. What are these symptoms? These symptoms are the five, what he, he split them up into these five hindrances. So they're all the things that we, that we desire. Uh, desire meaning this, you know, this drive to find happiness in the sensual world. They're all those things that we're averse to, get angry about, upset about. Uh, <clears throat> that all those things that um, we get, um, uh, that habit we have of, of of going into oblivion to escape problems, you know, like when you feel a bit off, you feel a bit things have got on top of you, or you feel a bit down, you get this, you know, neon lights, head for the bed, you, know, you <laughs> throw yourself on the couch, disappear for a while, using sleep as a sort of suppressant. Well, it is a suppressant. You push it away, push it down. All the stuff that makes us restless, and that includes things like guilt and shame, which are secondary emotions arising out of wrong actions. And doubts, doubts that dog us, not only spiritual doubts, but just ordinary doubts. Doubt, this is the right job, should I be with this person, should I not be with this person? Just doubts that dog us, you see. And doubts that uh, not, are not, shall we say, um, uh, honest doubts, for want of a better word, a sort of sense of wonder, but doubts which rest upon fear, fear of commitment. So all these turbulence that we have, all the depressions, all the anxieties, all the, the guilt and the shame, all, that, all, the, all the rubbish that starts inside us, these are all symptoms, they're all symptoms of this fundamental mistake. That doesn't mean to say that you can't treat them as symptoms. You know? Often when I speak like this, people think that I'm talking against things like uh, you know, therapy and stuff like that. Not at all. But it, uh, therapy itself won't actually get to the root of the problem, although it's obviously, it can be extremely helpful. There was a book called, um, you might have rem some of you might know it, Intelli in uh, em Emotional Intelligence. Yeah, you know that book. Well, there was another, uh, there was another author, a woman who wrote um, intelligent emotions, 
as a as a sort of commentary and it's an excellent book her understanding of how we make these emotions worse and worse uh, you know is second to none but the preface says tells us quite distinctly that there is no end to suffering it's a Freudian position where all we can do is accommodate we can only come to this position of a sort of sanity about life where it's always going to be uncomfortable and there's no way out of that which isn't a particularly <laughs> optimistic you know, but I mean, as truthful as she, as you know, from her point of view, perfectly truthful. So that we can sort of cut the hard edge off our suffering. We can sort of cut the cut the sharp edge off it. But basically, we we simply cannot be happy at all. There's no end to it, at least in this lifetime. And the reason is that when you read, you see that she hasn't she hasn't quite perceived where the core problem lies, and the core problem lies in not seeing these three characteristics. Okay? Now when we avert our gaze to those three characteristics, the hindrances still come up. They come up, we can see them in our fantasies. Yeah? We suddenly get caught off on, a, on some erotic, lustful or romantic dream. We're suddenly building a huge business which is going to take the world over. We're suddenly saving the world, that's a lovely one. And we suddenly have the answer to our... our <laughs> to our climate uh, problems, you know, all these lovely compassionate ideas. Okay? So that's all desire, even if, it's, even if it's arising out of, shall we say, some sort of compassion or some sort of love, it's still, it's still a production of the ego, of wanting to save the world. You'll notice that the direction is always to stop the dream, to stop the fantasy. Okay? That's your symptom. The fantasy is the symptom of the disorder. And then when you come in, at least you're at a, a secondary level of the disorder, which is the emotional state that you can experience. So as you descend into the body, and the answer always lies in the body, as you descend into the body and you feel that restlessness, you see, then the questions may arise, why is this, where does it come from, etc., etc. So that's again treating with the symptoms. The Buddha's image for that is of a, a man who's shot by an arrow. Some of you all know it. And they come to help him take the arrow out. And he says, well, well, hold on, he says, I want to know who fired it, why they fired it, who made the arrow, why, <laughs> right? Well, before they know, of course, he's dead. <laughs> so it's a case of recognizing that even here, the fundamental answer to our problems doesn't lie. See? Answer, asking those questions may be interesting, you know, it might be interesting to have a, a nice therapeutic session with somebody and find out <laughs> why that's happened, but it won't actually, won't actually pull the original thorn out of the system. So again, we avert our gaze. We're not concerned with the problem as such, the problem of this restlessness. We're now concerned with either seeing its transient nature, or the fact that we distance from it and we create in that distance a feeling of it being not me, not mine. When we do that, to our amazement, the thing begins to evaporate, begins to exhaust itself. Okay? And that's one way that we come to understand that these emotions, these states don't have any reality, they don't have any substance to them at all. They're just forms of energy. And in allowing them to dissipate like that, begin to see that 
when it comes to this therapy level of things, the wonder of the system is that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do a damn thing. You just have to sit there and bear it. <laughs> sit there and allow it to express itself. And in so doing, it's just a force. Just an, it, just, it just evaporates. Just evaporates. The other thing that we can do, apart from seeing it from these two vantage points of it being uh, impermanent, transient, getting into the, into the texture of the feeling, the actual texture, yeah, the different little sensations that arise with that restlessness in the heart yeah, or in the body. Hmm? And this other business of creating that distance see, so that it's quite clear, it's not me, not mine. There's a little warning there that sometimes we're using that to actually gently suppress it. Be careful. When you're noting something like restlessness, restlessness, careful you're not using the word to sort of gently kill it. See? Because <laughs> you won't kill it. All you're doing is just gently pushing it away. That distancing is a little technique which allows us to regain a certain equanimity within a situation. But once that equanimity is gained... We have to go into it, we have to feel it, to experience it. See? And at that point, this, this more impermanent, insubstantial quality of that becomes more apparent. And it's seeing its non-substantial nature which undermines the idea of it being a me, a mine. Now, <coughs> that's at that... No, to wait to the end. Now... <laughs> The, the, third, the third approach is by way of a very simple psychology which is open to everybody. And that is having experienced this restlessness to catch our relationship to it. Our perhaps aversion to it or our desire to indulge it. Either way, we're actually turning the turbulence. We're actually steering the turbulence. When you suppress it, the very force with which you suppress it with, that negative force of pushing it away, simply feeds back into the system. And it's like a, like a spring that's waiting to be sprung. And it comes up with the energy of that resistance. Yeah? And as you resist it, as you resist it, your attention is on the feeling of that resistance. Is it just an aversion or is it fear? Or is it, is it subtly moving from fear to aversion? Fear and aversion are two sides of the same coin. They're very close together. Anger and anger and anxiety, fear and hatred are very close. And the mind, and you can switch from one to the other almost at lightning speed. This was apparent to me when I was uh, <coughs> rather, uh, I confess, cruel to a little pup. <laughs> I was playing with it and uh, I kept pushing it away and it kept barking at me. But when I pushed it too much, it would whine with fear. And I could see very clearly that my same action of pushing it and pushing it away created a dual movement within this little being. One minute it was barking at me fiercely, <laughs> the next minute it was trying to get away. And that's all we're doing all the time with anything that we feel negative towards. But of course there is this other more... Uh, sorry, the, the great thing about aversion or fear is at least it distances us from the object. At least we can create a sort of not wanting, not wanting that. Hmm? 
in a sort of paradoxical way, it does make us stick to the object. You know this, for instance, if you've lived in a place where you've heard next door's music and it's come through just as a sort of continuous thump <laughs> of the bass. Dum, da dum, dum, da dum, you see? And this aversion comes, well, you just cannot get your ear off that wall. Eh? The aversion makes your ear stick to that wall more and more and more. And as soon as the aversion goes or you're distracted, you don't hear it anymore. So the, the peculiar thing about aversion and fear is that it attaches you to the object while at the same time distancing it. But it still has to be observed, it still has to be felt. And again, this is a conditioning. So if you try to suppress that, if you try to push that away, you find yourself in the same old situation where you're empowering the negativity within yourself. So again, it's a case of opening up. See, that's this business of this, um, that, that, that default position where you allow things to come in their fullness. And you're aware of that fear, of that aversion that might come. As it comes up sometimes, it comes up at a speed which is difficult to handle. Sometimes, we, as it were, our openness allows it to manifest too quickly for us. And you find yourself perhaps feeling a bit panicky. So when that happens, you just, you just chill out. You just sort of <laughs> cool the whole system and regain your equanimity. And the way to do that, if it's very bad, is just to get up in the posture and, and just go for a walk. But if it's not that bad, just to put your attention on a, on a neutral sensation, like your breath or your knees or your hands, you see? And that neutrality allows you to, allows you to, allows that reaction, should we say, to begin to diminish. At a much more subtle level, there is that identity, that, that indulgence <clears throat> and that of course is extremely difficult to counteract because it's such a conditioned force in us to indulge what we like but even so, when that feeling comes, something that's desirable you see, you have to be with it now let's take for instance some, some dream that we have some, something that we want to achieve in our lives and the mind is constantly creating scenarios whereby we can achieve it. Let's say uh, set up a small business or something. So you see, here in meditation, we're observing how this desire is constantly manufacturing this inner world. And remember that everything that human beings have done have started with that image. Everything that you see, from jet planes to computers to... Whatever you see has always begun with an idea. It's always begun coming out of the mind. As you come off that, uh, that desire, see, and you come back into the body, and you may feel that sort of excitement that's around it, keep your attention within the body, but if you can, just feel that energy which is, which is moving out to create the world is moving out to create the dream. Huh? You can feel it, it's quite a strong pull. Now, if your attention stays with the original excitement in the body, and with that feeling of wanting to go back into the dream world, if you stay at that level of feeling, and you wait until this power, which wants to manifest the excitement hmm, as a dream, and you wait for it to die away, you see, then you'll see 
you're emptying the mind of that desire. And that's not that difficult to do, so long as you know where to look for it, see? And where you look for it is always starting with that physical base. You can't do it in the mind, the mind's too quick. Once you've manifested through a mind, through a dream, you've lost it, you've become unconscious, you might say. You've lost that sort of awareness, that mindfulness. So that's why when you wake up from a dream, you see, you note, planning, planning. See, that gives you the, that gives you the in. You know what, something is in the heart that wants to achieve something. And that's when you come back down into the body and try to contact it. Hmm? If you can't contact it, fine. You just stay with the breath. It's not a problem. So anything to do with uh, desire, which is the first of these hindrances, you know, try to find that excitement in the body, whatever it might be. And then that movement that wants to manifest it. And just stay there. And again, remind yourself, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do a single thing. All you have to do is allow the energy to manifest. And this is our, we say, unfortunate position. These uh, turbulences, these, these turbulences... Cannot, cannot release themselves except into consciousness. And they've only got two ways to go. Either through some feeling emotional state, or if they're too suppressed, too repressed, they'll come out through the body as illness. Or at least as some form of discomfort. So that's why in your meditation, you get, you know, people get headaches, they feel nausea, they get backaches. And all that is this turbulence trying to, you know, manifesting through the body. And once they go, something goes, but you never know what it, for the most part, you never know what the hell it was. All you know is that something's gone. Okay? Even though, even say, uh, for about four, four to five weeks, I was just getting this continual pain at the back of my neck. For seemingly no reason, I couldn't understand it at all. And then it just disappeared. <laughs> and it's just, it's just one of those things. So as your, as your psyche begins to empty itself, as your, as your psychology begins to purify itself, this process of purification is always a process which is not particularly pleasant. And you have to be prepared for that. So it's the same with these other things, such as all the hatreds and aversions, the angers that, that, that we've got locked in the system. See, once you allow them to manifest as dream, uh, dreams, as fantasies, unwittingly, you're developing them. You know, you know that from your just ordinary daily life experience, where somebody has said something to you in the morning which has been just a little upsetting, and you've brushed it aside, you see. And then while you're having a cup of tea, and you're bloody good coming here, say something like <laughs> And by lunchtime, you're biting the fork. And evening, you're taking aspirin. <laughs> and it all builds up. How's it? Be? I mean, the person only insulted you or said something slightly uh, hurtful once, but you've had them repeat it millions of times just to drive the point home. So the danger, so this, this mind that we have, which is so creative and has created so many beautiful things, 
the music, the art and all that, is also incredibly destructive. And we have to see that within ourselves. And we have to see, we have to be very clear that when the mind is wandering off on an aversion or whatever it is, you know, that it's not suppressing anything to pull the mind out, to pull the attention out of it. That's not suppressing. And it's no, and it's, it's of little value to investigate the causes of it, you know. If it's, a, if it's an obvious thing, like somebody's upsetting you, uh, say at work, who's, say, bullying you, then obviously one has to investigate that. But in terms of our inner psychology, something that perhaps has been there from childhood and in Buddhist understanding even before, uh, there's absolutely no, there's nothing to be gained by it. And therefore the attention is now drawn back into the body. And in a sense it's only through your own practice that you become confident that it's staying with the heart, staying with these turbulences at a feeling level that they're actually beginning to exhaust themselves. Now I wouldn't want to give anybody the wrong impression that you know, if one works hard enough within a couple of months one is perfectly... <laughs> think in terms of a quarter century then <laughs> to see tremendous progress but I think even <laughs> even in the even in the short term uh, six months or a year one can see that at least um, things might be getting just a wee bit better now it's the same with this uh, sloth and torpor this uh, it's been translated as sloth which gives it a sort of model twist uh, but this sort of dullness dullness in the head and, and a lethargy in the body so remember that that's also uh, a consequence of developing uh, that attitude that of seeking comfort in oblivion you know, just, just, just conking out uh, and the great thing about oblivion is, is that there really is no suffering there it's perfect <laughs> it is a place where you can go where there is no suffering unfortunately we wake up and uh, you know in the Buddha's understanding there will always be a waking up so long as there's a self there, there will be a form of existence there will always be a seeking of that consciousness to find expression so <coughs> recognizing that you know be careful in your daily life not to enter into that state rather go for a walk or do something or just just keep awake as it were not to not to begin to develop that that lethargy. I mean, in in you know, in bad cases of depression, I remember a woman. She was she was sleeping then sixteen, eighteen hours a day. You see, making things sort of worse for herself, really. Um, then there's all this business of, of restlessness, and that can be the cause. That can be caused by anything, really. Just a sense of of restlessness. And um, it's a case of, remember, when, uh, just like dullness, when it's in the mind, when, the, when there's restlessness in the mind or dullness in the head, you see, to actually put your attention there, just stay with it, attend to it, as a nurse might to a patient. You don't have to do anything, you just bear with it. Now when the mind's rushing off all over the place, it's just patiently bringing it back, patiently bringing it back. See? Now, when we do this business of reflection at the end of the at the end of a sitting, and I say, you know, just reflect on on your meditation. If 
the whole of your meditation you've just been coming back off these off this turbulent mind that's a good meditation but if you give in if you say oh, well I'll, I will think about that then that's it you could say to yourself that was a really bad meditation <laughs> if you feel if you feel that dullness in the head and you and you and you're feeling lethargic and you're constantly waking yourself up and stretching the body and opening your eyes and standing up you see and even if it stays with you in your walking meditation you see but you're constantly sort of just keeping awake just keeping above it making those feelings those sensations something to observe something to feel experience then that's a good meditation but if at any time you say to yourself well I'll just have a kip knowing full well knowing full well that there is not real tiredness and one can say to oneself that was a bad meditation <laughs> one should feel guilty one should feel shame so <laughs> so that whenever that thought arises the, get, the shame and the guilt arises with it which one does not want to suffer and the Buddha puts on the same uh, the same hindrance, this quality of uh, guilt, shame, remorse. Remorse, of course, is a is a is a healing feeling, but it's still it's still not a pleasant feeling. Remorse. So remember that uh, guilt and shame are uh, guilt, or is, I mean, here we talk about the dread of consequences. The dread of consequences. So it's actually beginning to understand that there's a way in which we are creating our own suffering. Hmm? And a, a true statement would be that we only, we can only create our own stuff, suffering and only we create our own suffering. Nobody can create suffering for us. It's always the way that we relate to what we're actually experiencing. Hmm? So <coughs> when we... Uh, perceive that you see then we need to be uh, we need to take full responsibility for our situation which at first is disappointing because it's always nice to blame somebody else or blame the system or the government but actually when you turn in, your, in turn into yourself and you realize that you're the only one creating your suffering I'm the only one creating my suffering taking on that responsibility at least now um, narrows the avenue of escape to at least just me before I had to change the world before I had to get rid of my enemies and all the people who were making it awful for me <laughs> but now it's just me that makes it very simple because all I have to do now is investigate myself my own psychology to realize where I'm making the mistakes And the final one is this uh, business of doubt. So doubt in the spiritual life is, is a real, uh, it's, it's a pernicious illness because it stops you committing yourself. If, if, you doubt, uh, if you doubt the practice, then you won't do it. If you doubt yourself, if you say that, well, everybody else can do it but not me, then that'll stop you doing it. So doubt is, uh, th this sort of sceptical doubt is, uh, something that has to be investigated and again it's very simple you don't get caught up in the mind you don't get caught up in what the mind is saying you go into the feelings of doubt the feelings that surround this so-called doubt and I think invariably you'll find some form of resistance some form of fear 
some form of fear of consequences or, or lack of confidence, which is only another form of, of um, uh, you know, self-aversion, lack of confidence. And it's investigating it at that level of feeling, at that level of um, uh, emotion, emotional feeling, that these things begin to evaporate. That uh, sense of doubt, uh, don't confuse that with a sense of wonder. Wonder is the philosopher's emotion, isn't it? It's the philosopher within us that wonders. Now that's the emotion, that's the, the drive that the Buddha actually wants us to develop. That's what we mean by curiosity. That's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. The desire of wanting to know. And it's not as though we come from that position of belief. You know, the Buddha said this, therefore it must be right. It's the Buddha said this, now let's see if it's right for me. That's our attitude. That's the attitude that he would want us to develop. So that we go into the investigation always from that position of not sure, don't know. So now, in your meditation, when you're sitting, that's part of your um, process of developing the skills of meditation. Whenever a mental state arises, you see, if you don't know, if you're not sure as to what to do, make sure you find out. When a mental state arises, there should arise with it how to deal with it. And it's through dealing with it in a proper way that this process of purifying the heart is taking place. Hmm? So that's why that reflection at the end of a sitting is important. Even if it's only a single reflection, even if it's only just looking back and thinking, well now, how did I, you know, how did I fall asleep again, you know? Why did I move at that point? <laughs> you know, it's like going back and just saying, well, okay, next time I'll do this, next time I'll do that. See? Even if you don't do it, you see, even if you forget, that's fine. Just in your next sitting, when you, when you make the same mistake, note that this has happened before and that you must make a firm determination uh, not to fall into that same error. And it's very slowly, you, you just train yourself, just train yourself into the skills of meditation. So, um, here we have, we've, we've got a technique, right? We've all got a technique, a basic way of doing it. Watching the breath, noting, going slow. I haven't stressed the going slow, I'll do that tomorrow. <laughs> and <clears throat> we've got that technique, but we also know what it is we're looking at. So we're looking at the impermanence, we're looking at the sense of, non-substantiality, the not me, not mine, the distance that, that is between the knower and the knowing. We're looking at the way we react to things, learnt reactions. Hmm? And, in that, and in that, we're looking at all those negative things that come up. Negative things to do with those things that we desire, that cause excitement, that cause us to dream of, of a, a better life and all that. We're looking at all the aversions. We're looking at this um, dullness and lethargy. Uh, we're looking at the restlessness and we're looking at the doubt. But also we're looking at our responses to those things and not getting caught up in the indulgence, in the aversion. Uh, 
So we're constantly lifting ourselves out of the mind with its machinations. And we're not getting drawn into any history. You see? Um, whatever happened in the past, this is a product which is happening now. The product itself is the problem, not the past. It manifests now as this, as this mental state. In, in dealing with this mental state, the past loses its effect. So, when we practice Vipassana, these two things are happening. We're correcting that initial delusion, that stigmatism in, the, in our faculty of knowing, in our intuitive intelligence, in the Buddha within, and we're allowing the heart to purify itself. That's, that's, that's what Vipassana is doing. And that's what we're practicing over this weekend. The positive side, which we practice at the end of the, of the weekend, is how we transform that energy into its opposite. And that's through the practice of metta. Practice of metta. That's the first step in that transformation. So in the Eightfold Path, having got the right understanding of how the whole thing works, the psychophysical organism, we then purify the heart, you see, which is part of the attitudinal the second step and then we begin to work with attitudes to begin to transform them so from hatred to love from cruelty to compassion and so on and then these are established they are confirmed they are developed through right speech right action and right language so that whole process of liberation is systemic if it stops up in the head there's a danger of it becoming uh, intellectual and callous. If it stops in the heart, the di- there's a danger of it becoming mawkish and sentimental. Hmm? So that whole process has to be really, con- really sort of taken through to its logical conclusion, which is the good life, the wholesome, virtuous life. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be fully liberated sooner rather than later. <laughs> so, <clears throat> it might be good to do a little walking meditation. It's about a quarter of an hour. Yeah, don't worry about the schedule. <laughs> if, you do, if you do some walking meditation, can you give the bell ring in about 20 minutes? And then we'll do another section. The evening will unfold. Now, if there's any questions that arise from that, oh, we've got a bit of paper. I should have asked you, I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll put a bit of paper. Where will it be? Can we put it downstairs and delete the paper downstairs and then people can yeah? questions? If anything arises from that, you know, just put down your questions and um, all will be revealed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.